Good morning. For today's Bible reading, we're going to be starting off with Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, keep a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope, I wait for the Lord. More than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. We're going to continue on with that passage with Psalms 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Welcome again. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. I want to first, before I begin, just say how privileged I am to serve alongside such a capable team, uh, a staff team and a wider church leadership team. I'm so thrilled for you as members of this fellowship that you have such gifted pastors serving with you and among you. Uh, you know, uh, I've been serving here for about five, six years, uh, but I've been really blessed to, to have Stephen Cole, our Associate Pastor of Youth and Young Adults, Joanna Hoffman, our Minister of Community Life, and now Chris Cullen, our Executive Pastor, uh, join me. And can I just tell you how impressed I've been over the last several weeks as we've been dreaming together, planning together, talking together about the direction of ministry here at WDBC. I'm thrilled for you to be back. I'm thrilled for you to be a part of this fellowship. And I want to say I'm humbled because I learn from these people every week. They sharpen me, they shape me, they encourage me, and I trust they'll do the same for you. Uh, I'm also very grateful for our wider staff team and for the people who uh, have really supported me uh, over the last uh, few weeks in particular um, as I've been trying to seek the Lord and, and, and pursue him and get my heart in a good place. Uh, so I'm grateful to all of them and to, and to all of you and know that it's my privilege to serve and to continue to, to walk in the ways that the Lord has called and gifted me here at WDBC. We are in the midst of a series through the Psalms of Ascent, and these Psalms are short Psalms, and they're Psalms that are, are really functioning like songs. Uh, they're songs for the journey. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about how they were used, but most scholars today would tell you that they were songs that were sung on pilgrimage. It was a pilgrimage that started far away from God and ended in Jerusalem in the temple at the altar where God was worshipped at the place where God would meet with his people over the blood shed and the sacrifice. Uh, and with any journey, there's always highs and lows on that journey. Maybe you're going on a road trip. You're planning one for later this year, uh, sticking with New South Wales, I'm sure, but you're getting, looking forward to getting out. And maybe you're going to get a playlist together and you're going to sort of think through what are the different things I want to put on that playlist as I get ready to travel. And you'll probably have, you know, some upbeat, some sort of some boppy anthems for when you just first start to head out. And, and then maybe you'll, you know, you'll have some just sort of contemplative things for, you know, allowing your mind to wander and, and, pass, and pass the time. But I bet you you're going to put a couple songs on that playlist that really just speak to your heart, that really are there to lift you when you're in a hard place. These two psalms, Psalm 130 and Psalm 131, are those type of songs. They are psalms that were written from an individual perspective with a communal application, and they are songs that teach us to look up to hope. Hope is something that is crucial, and it's very uh, important for all of us it's the thing that keeps us going towards our destination. The big truth that you need to take away from these Psalms is quite simple. It's there is hope in the Lord. There's hope in the Lord. Now, you say, you're supposed to say that. You're a pastor. They pay you to say that. Well, maybe you could argue that. But it's a simple and a profound truth. It's a gospel truth. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, 
is this hope real? Is it a real hope? Now, we throw the word hope around quite loosely. You know, I hope my team wins the Super Bowl this year. I hope that I get to, you know, see the, the, the fruits of my labors uh, come to fruition. I, I hope that I have a great retirement plan. I, I hope that my relationships uh, remain strong and healthy. You know, we have all sorts of things that we might hope for. But when we use the word hope, we often mean it in a way that it's a wish. I wish my team would win the Super Bowl this year. That would just make it all fantastic. I wish I got that promotion. I really wish that this relationship works out. We use the word hope as a wish, but that's not the way the Bible describes this kind of hope. So when we say there's hope in the Lord, what we're not saying is that here is a crutch that you might be able to lean on. Here is something that you might find particularly engaging for your own spirit. Those things may be true, but when the Bible says there is hope in the Lord, what it means is there is certainty, there's assurance, assurance to conquer even the things that we don't see. Now, it's really important that we try to understand whether this hope is real, because if our hope is false, so is our faith. If our hope's false, so is our faith. Think about that for just, just a moment. Why are you in church? Why are you sitting on your couch? Why are you, why are you engaging in spiritual things at all? How much confidence do you really have that these things that you're listening to, these things that you're participating in are actually true? I want you to think for a moment that their truthfulness is something that is either real or not. And so if we, as much as we want to hear about grace and redemption and forgiveness and about, about the love of God, the majesty of God, a perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful creator, as much as we want that to be true, the wanting it to be true doesn't necessarily make it true, does it? And so perhaps one way of considering what is being told to us through the scriptures is to say, is this hope that it's offering me, is it a real hope? Because if it's not real, then what's the point of believing it? Maybe you started in the church, maybe you were brought into the stream of faith by people who were convinced that this was a real hope, but you haven't been convinced yet. And you're wondering, why am I here? Well, I want to tell you, it's right to wonder, why am I here if this hope is not real? As we come to Psalms 130 and 131, you'll notice that each of these psalms ends with a call to hope in the Lord. Two different songs with the same chorus. <laughs> and these two psalms are sung as an expression of faith, as a telling of their own story, as it were, in a way that invites us into the same hope that they know. These psalms describe both the quality and the certainty of this hope, albeit from different perspectives. But together, they will guard our faith against threats to our sojourning souls, the threats of despair and distress. But let me put that in a 21st century language for you. Depression and anxiety. Depression and anxiety, anxiety and depression. Have you ever watched a life that seemed like it was surging forward and all of a sudden it came to a grinding halt? Maybe that feels like your life. And you look from the outside and you say, what's going on? They seem to have everything that they would need. They, they, they seem to have enough means. They, they seem to have a support system and key relationships. They seem to 
You know, they don't seem to be sort of engaging in any particular sort of vice that might wreck their life, but yet they appear crippled. Maybe you feel crippled. And we're growing and increasing awareness of the reality of depression and anxiety and the effect that that has upon the soul. The mental health profession has been warning us about how serious these issues are. And if you think about someone on a journey, they might, they might pack up everything they need. They might go through all the training, all the, all, all the equipping that, that they need to, to set out and embark upon this, this great venture. But if along the way, if in the course of the venture, if, if on the journey they lose heart, or they panic, they'll stop, and they won't make it. You see, a lot of these Psalms of Ascent have been talking about external enemies and and people who have, in reality, been persecuting the faithful people of God, but these Psalms speak to the threats of the person within. And they call us to hope. Thomas Wilder is quoted in Waltke's commentary. He says, hope is a projection of the imagination. In other words, you hope in things that you can't quite see yet. It's a projection of the imagination, but so is despair. Despair all too readily embraces the ills that it foresees, but hope is an energy And it arouses the mind to explore every possibility to combat them. You see, hope and despair in some ways operate on the same plane. They're both operating in the vacuum of things they cannot see. But whereas despair grabs on to the ills, grabs on to the the lack, hope embraces the abundance. These psalms are going to call us to that. Our outline this morning is as follows. By answering three questions, these these songs are going to invite us to put real hope in the Lord. So three questions to really kind of work out, is this a real hope? And and, and you'll see that, that these psalms speak into these questions. The first question that needs to be asked is, what kind of hope is this? What kind of hope? Is this the wishful thinking hope? Is this the pie in the sky hope? Is this this hope that's really just an expression of a desire? What kind of hope is this? The second question, what is the basis for this hope? It's well and good to be offered a kind of hope, but if it has no basis in reality, or if we don't know where it comes from, can it be valid? And finally, how do we experience this hope? What kind of hope is this that is offered in the Lord? What is the basis of this hope? And how do we experience this hope? With that, I invite you to pray with me as we seek the Lord's blessing. Our Father in heaven, we come before you now as souls that are weary. Lord, some of us have been traveling for a long time and some of us are very unsure. Lord, some of us this morning are feeling the ache and the pain in places that we did not know we could feel it. Father, some are swarmed with desperate thoughts. But Lord, your word is light and truth. And so we ask you, almighty God, Would you break forth your light upon us today? May the sword of your spirit cut through to the depths and plant within us the seed of truth and righteousness that we would grow to be strong oaks of righteousness watered by your spirit. 
bearing the fruit of Christ to the glory of you, our creator. Lord, would you minister to us today? In Jesus' name we ask, amen. We come to the first question, which is, what kind of hope is this? What kind of hope is it? And if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 130. When we say, what kind of hope is this? We're going to see it's answered in really two ways. Psalm 130 pictures for us a hope that lifts. And Psalm 131 puts for us a hope that stills. A hope that lifts and a hope that stills. But first, we need to ask, what is it like in the depths? <laughs> Psalm 130 begins famously with the words, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Literally, from the depths I lift my voice to you. I cry. And so we need to stop for a moment before we can even embrace what hope is offered here to consider what is it actually like in the depths. I had somebody come to me once and say, you know, Pastor, I don't get depressed. I want to say, God bless you, sir, madam, if that's you. But can I tell you, that is not the experience for many people. When I ask you what is it like in the depths, you could probably tell me a story. You could probably describe the contours of your soul in these depths. But I'm going to suggest for you this morning that the depths are so difficult for a number of reasons. First of all, in the depths, there's a distance. There's this feeling that you are in the low place. Everything else is happening on the surface. God's is miles away, and like Joseph in the pit, you feel totally cut off and estranged. There's a distance there. In the depths, it's also dark. There is a lack of light. There's, there's, a, there's a lack of being able to see, to comprehend, and to understand, to make sense of what's going on around you, which means it's in the depths. It's not only distant, it's not only dark, but it's also full of doubt. When you're in the depths, you don't feel sure, do you? You don't feel certain. And finally, when you're in the depths, it's dangerous, isn't it? It's dangerous. There's a danger of being deprived of the things that you need, being cut off from the sources of life and being, being, being sort of pulled away, not being able to get food. You think of Jeremiah who was, who was left in the cistern in the mud and the muck, literally probably above his waist, just sitting there relying on people lowering food down to him. There's a danger of starvation. There's also a danger of giving up. You see, what is it like in the depths? You can be in the depths on a circumstantial level. Things in your life might suddenly collapse because of things totally outside of your control. Someone you know and love creates trauma. Or someone you know and love suddenly is removed from your life. And this reality of loss. And for some reason, that's the time when the dishwasher breaks. <laughs> and that's the time when you get that speeding ticket. And things seem to converge on a circumstantial level. You feel literally in the pit. It's like life is conspiring against you to drive you down. If you can circumstantially be in the depths, you can certainly be in the depths emotionally or psychologically. We already touched on this. Anxiety and depression, wreaking havoc on the mind, twisting the way that you see and the way you interact and the way you react and not being able to make sense of what's going on around you. And, and suddenly people who looked familiar and looked normal to you, said they look strange and they look different. And they're treating you differently. And they're asking you, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And you want to tell them the truth, but you can't. Because you don't know why. 
And you don't want to be somebody's problem to fix. You don't want to be a project. Sometimes anxiety and depression come from prolonged periods of shame and guilt. Sometimes we're in the depths because for whatever reason, one day we decided, I'm going to dig that hole and now suddenly I'm in it. And in the depths we're surrounded by nobody but our own thoughts and our own regrets. In Hebrew, five times this word for depths appears, and the four other times it refers to the depths of the ocean. And that's the picture. Someone sinking down, down, down. This is the place from which the psalmist cries. But we would be wrong to stop short there. You see, there is a circumstantial depths that you can be in. You can be in a pit. You can be at the bottom of the sea on a circumstantial level. You can be in the bottom of the sea on on an emotional, a mental, a psychological level. But there is a whole nother depth that most people don't even realize that they're inhabiting. And that is on the ontological level, at the level of your being, we are in the depths. Paul would say, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, as much as we may feel low, as much as we may feel like life is getting on top of us, these feelings or these, these, these earthly realities cannot hold a candle to the spiritual depths we inhabit apart from Christ. The Bible says we are without hope and we are without God in the world. Not because we woke up this morning and felt bad, but because we've been stained by sin. And so as we read about this psalmist in the depths, you're going to see him take an interesting turn in this psalm. But first, hear Eugene Peterson. In his book, The Long Obedience in in the Same Direction, he says that the psalmist here, he sets suffering squarely and openly and passionately before God. It is acknowledged and it is expressed, it is described and it is lived. And it is that simple act of desperate presentation that triggers a flood of hope. Psalm 130, verse 1 to 8, we see that hope here lifts us from the depths. Verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Follow the psalmist here. Can I tell you, if you're in the pit today, don't make the mistake of being stuck in your own thoughts. Do what the psalmist does here and actually lift your voice to God. You need to address him. You need to speak to him. You need to let him hear your cry. You may have nothing in the world, not a cent to your name, not an ounce of reputation. You may not have any qualities that you think are worth listening to. But if you have a voice, even a murmur, or if you can even lift a hand, you can call upon the Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. This anthropomorphizing of the Lord. Lord, I know you have ears. I know you have a capacity to hear. Will this this prayer, will will it just reach, reach up to you? That's his plea. And in the desperation of that, Notice the transition that happens. He begins to realize, what if God does hear my prayer? Verses three and four, he suddenly realizes, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? 
in his, in his experience in the depths in the pit, he says, I just, I just need to hear you. I need you to hear me, God. He wants an audience with the Lord, much like Job did. But then he recognizes, if I get the audience with the Lord, on what basis do I think I could even endure? I could even stand. You see, he sees things as they really are. Karen Pryor, in her book on reading well, discusses hope through the novel, through a novel of post-apocalyptic literature. And in this novel, she says, hope has to be real if it's going, if it's got to face reality, if it's going to have any sort of value. And here the psalmist realizes that if he's if he's going to stand before the Lord, something must be done about his sin. And he remembers the character of God. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. Literally, forgiveness goes with you, God. The forgiveness comes with you. There is no forgiveness apart from God. You can forgive yourself as long as you want. That doesn't mean anything if God has not forgiven you. With you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence fear you. Many people have stumbled over this verse over time. They've, they've wondered, how is it that the forgiveness of God might lead to fear or to reverence of God? It might make more sense. As one of our pastors said in Sermon in Scripture, it might make more sense if, if it, said, it said, there is judgment with you, Lord, so therefore you are feared. We might make more sense of that, but how is it that the forgiveness of God leads us to revere him more? Have you ever been in a situation with somebody where they had the ability to just stick it to you? They had the ability to just pin you to the wall. They caught you red-handed. You were, you were dead to rights. But they didn't. I bet you walked out of that situation respecting them more, revering them more. There's a sense here that God is desirous of relationship. And with this forgiveness, we can be brought into that. And so the consequence, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits for the Lord. In his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. This, there's two words that are used for wait here and both describe an experience of, of tension do you like to wait? <laughs> I don't like to wait. Waiting puts us in a posture of dependency. We're saying, I'm looking for something. I don't have it. And I'm dependent upon somebody else in order to receive it. And so we don't like to wait. But here, the psalmist waits not with abject uncertainty, not with a total no thought that it's going to come, that the Lord's going to come and grant this forgiveness. No, he waits like a watchman for the morning. His eyes may be tired. His duties may be mundane. He may be straining, but he knows the waiting is not forever because he knows the sun is going to come up. And so there's a certainty to his waiting. And for this reason, he says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. The old RSV said, plenteous redemption. <laughs> there's an abundance of redemption in the Lord. He himself, note what he says here, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Do you notice how his outlook has changed? Here he is in the pit 
We're not told why. We don't know what it, we don't know how he got in the depths. We just know he's there. And in the depths, he cries to the Lord, and he recognizes that the only basis that his, his cry would be heard and the Lord would respond is the mercy and the love and the grace of God that will take his sin away. And he's confident that it's happened for him because he's he's recognizing that God is going to do that for all his people. Because that's the kind of God he is. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Oh. My heart aches for you who are in the depths. I grieve for you. I weep with you. I don't know how far down you are. But the next time you are contemplating the depths that you're in, I want you to remember Romans 11.33. Because Paul in describing this truth that God is going to redeem Israel. He's going to redeem all his people from their sins. Paul will write in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of the love of God. How far down you are is not deeper than the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge and the love of God in Christ. With him is plenteous redemption, full redemption. Oh, brother, sister, receive it, bathe in it, glory in it. There will be nothing lacking. As the writer to the Hebrews would say, he will save you to the uttermost. He will save you more than anyone can be saved. He will redeem you more than anyone can be redeemed. He will give you grace greater than you ever needed because grace triumphs over judgment. This is the heart of our God in Christ. And so while Satan will whisper to your soul, you're too far gone, he doesn't care about you, you, you're lost, you're sinking, you're drowning, it's over. Know that there is no depth greater than the wisdom and the knowledge and the love and the glory of God in Christ. Banish that lie. It belongs in the pit of hell. This is a hope that lifts. This is a hope that restores. This is a hope that raises. This is a hope that resurrects. You see. I want to read to you a quote from George Whitfield. I heard this in a Tim Keller sermon yesterday as I was walking through Costco. I really recommend listening to sermons while you're shopping because you're honestly, you're mindlessly strolling through and you're just trying to sort of pick things, pick things out and, 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 and sort of the drumbeat of God's truth as you're kind of pacing through the aisles can sort of help get you through that experience. And in this sermon, he quotes George Whitfield. The sermon was on Galatians. It's a really good series. I encourage you to check it out. And it's how... In the gospel, we add nothing to the grace given to us in Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. But he had this great quote from a Whitfield sermon, and I, I thought it applied to this. Whitfield would say, he, he's a preacher in the Great Awakening a couple hundred years ago. Whitfield would say, our best duties are as so many splendid sins. <laughs> If you never felt the deficiency of your own righteousness, you cannot come to Jesus Christ. You see, a lot of us think of the grace of God is, oh, it's a grace that gets me in, but then I got to prove myself and I got to stay in. And so Jesus opens the door, but 
What keeps me in is my commitment. What keeps me in is my self-discipline. What keeps me in is my acts of righteousness. What keeps me in is my value to the kingdom of God. That's what keeps me in the gates of paradise. No, 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 no. Our best duties, the best thing you've ever done is probably tainted with sin. Whitfield would say, before you can speak peace to your heart, you must not only be sick of your original and actual sin, but you must be made sick of your righteousness, of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you that can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol to be taken out of our hearts. There's a hope that lifts. There's also a hope that calms. Psalm 131, we find in here hope to quiet our distressed souls. Hope, paradoxically, in this psalm, it it arises from humility. Joanna and I have been having great conversations and she had a really great insight about the way that pride masks our need. Pride masks our dependency and how it's so ironic because humility, the lowness, the not exalting of ourselves is the thing that actually enables the flowing of true hope to our lives. As I tried to capture on the screen, embracing God's greatness and and our dependence, in doing that we discover peace to still our anxious souls. Look with me at Psalm 131. It's a short psalm, a psalm of David. He writes, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not consider myself, do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I love what Derek Kidner said. I'm going to paraphrase here. He described pride as the feeling that you are better than others. That's what the first part of verse 1 is about. David says, in my heart, I'm not looking around and saying, well, at least I'm better than that person. At least I'm better than that person. At least I'm better than that person. It's not a heart that's given to comparison or rank. My eyes are not haughty. David says, I'm not looking around, looking down on people. I'm looking people eye to eye. Or I'm looking up. Like the small child Jesus put in the circle and said to his disciples, my kingdom is for ones like these. If pride is thinking better, you are better than others, the next sort of sin that David says he's not participating in is one of presumption. He says in the second half of the verse, I do not concern myself with great matters. Literally, I do not walk in great and wondrous things. Kidner calls this presumption, which is thinking you deserve better than others. (laughs) Pride thinks you are better than others. Presumption thinks you deserve what they have. You deserve better than others. I should have that job. I should have that following. I should have that salary. I should have that person. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. David says these are not the things that his heart is filled with. It's a heart of humility. In its place, listen to what he says. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. What's this image of a weaned child? Now, When I've read this when I was a younger man, before I was married, before I had any kids, before I knew really anything about children or babies, I thought the picture that this psalm was describing is a babe suckling at its mother's breast. That's exactly the opposite of what it says. (laughs) Yes, the child is with its mother, but the child is weaned, which I would come to find out much later in life than I probably should have. That means the child doesn't get its nourishment from its mother's breast anymore. It can be fed from her hand. 
Now, experientially, what helped me learn this lesson was traveling internationally with babies. <laughs> we moved here in 2010 to Australia. We moved to the outback of Burke. 2010, we got on a plane. We get on the plane. It's a long 13, 14-hour flight from Los Angeles. And we had a two-year-old, a one-year-old, and a, I don't know, 30-week-year-old, something like that. 25-week-year-old in utero. And let me tell you, you never feel more self-conscious than traveling with children on a plane. You get eyes from everybody. And while most people are gracious and acceptable, uh, you know, very, very loving to you, there's other people who you can tell you're just, you're just really bothering them. And what happens is, a child who is not weaned, the moment they are hungry, they start crying. They start fidgeting. In fact, a child who's not weaned, even if they're sitting with their mother, the, excuse me, the smell, the familiarity of the touch will prompt the child, the, the unweaned child, to clamor for its mother's milk. Some of you mothers are at home going, uh-huh, I know that, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I learned later, sometimes my wife would just give me the baby. She just said, I'm not ready to feed this child, but if it's near me, it's going to think I'm going to feed it. So please, take the baby away. <laughs> Tell me the other room for a few minutes. And as I was preparing for this message this week, I had a really sweet moment. We were on the couch at the end of the day and I looked over and you know, we're all, all my kids are growing. And there's my youngest child, Noah. You know, fully weaned, just sitting close to his mother, content. How strange would it be for, some, for a child never to be weaned? The psalmist here is picturing a child who knows it doesn't need to scream or to cry, knows it doesn't need to flap about, to, 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 to clamor for its mother's breast. It knows its mother will feed it. Notice David says, he doesn't say, I have a calm and quiet soul. He doesn't say that. I have calmed, I have quieted my soul. You see, one of the reasons that we get anxious, what happens when we get anxious is there's all these, these needs, these desires that feel so deep and so real. And when we see that these needs and desires aren't being met or we don't see how they're gonna be met, our mind starts to break down, doesn't it? And it starts to say, this is a problem. I don't know how to fix it. I know I have this need, but I can't see how it's going to be met. And David doesn't say, I, I self-talk and self-talk and self-talk and self-talk and, and put myself in a position of ignoring the fact that I have a need. That's one way of trying to deal with it. You've all seen the meme of the cartoon character on the couch and the house is on fire and the guy's saying, everything's fine. <laughs> That's not what it means to calm and quiet your soul. David says, I've calmed and quieted my soul because I'm a weaned child and I'm with my mother. He says, I'm dependent, but I'm with my provider. What a beautiful picture. I'll never forget, I was in seminary. I was doing way too much. And in my mortal fleshly mind, I, would, I had put all these, all these connections together in my head and I didn't see how I was going to be able to do them. 
And I started having panic attacks and anxiety attacks. And one night it was so bad, I, I, I was convinced I was dying. And we called 911. You would call triple zero. We called 911. <clears throat> I'm in the hospital. And they hook me up to all the machines and the EKG and all that. And, and I'm there. And, and they look at me and they're like, your heart's functioning fine. What's going on? I'll never forget, I had a, had a lovely Christian brother. Ironically, he too married an Australian. He's a missionary. He visited me late at night at the, in the ER. He walked in and he said, he said, you're anxious. I said, yeah. He said, I get anxious too. He said, I'm going to commend to you this psalm. Psalm 131. I said, I've never heard of that one. It's not, you know, it's not Psalm 23. It's not, you know. And he prayed through it with me. And he said, sometimes, Jonathan, I wake up in the middle of the night and my mind's racing and I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do. He said, I've committed this to memory. And he said, I'll just, I'll just pray it. I'll just sing it to the Lord. You see, this is a hope that stills. And this, the soul can become still when it's not trying to puff itself up and, and, and grab onto things that it's never going to be able to hold anyway. And it's not creating this, this mask, as Joanna would say, or, or, or this artificial covering that's, that, that's trying to protect or hide the need or hide the hurt. No. But a heart that is humble is a heart that sees a great God and it sees its own dependency and it looks to God and it sees one as loving as a mother. Who will of course feed her child at the proper time. This is the kind of hope we're talking about. It's a hope that lifts us from the depths. It's a hope that stills our anxious souls. And we'll move quickly here, but what is our basis for this hope? The basis for this hope, oh, there's our Romans verse. <laughs> the basis for this hope, it's grounded in knowing, this is important, in knowing the person and word of God who redeems. You need to know God because he is where the hope is. Back to Psalm 130, verse, verse 4. With you there is forgiveness so that we can fear you. The grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the releasing us from our punishment, the guilt that our sins deserve, the wrath that is rightfully meant to, to fall on us. The release of that brings us into relationship so that he can then go on to say in verse six and seven, I wait for the Lord. I don't wait for things to change. I don't wait for me to feel better. I don't wait for me to finish reading, you know, doing that course and getting that training. No, he says, I wait for the Lord. All those things are good, but he knows his hope is in the Lord. So he waits for him. But not just the Lord, and in his word I put my hope. The word for hope there could also be translated waiting, and it's a word that is used in the context of a woman giving birth. As she's waiting for the child to come. Which I don't have any experiential knowledge of, but everything I've ever heard from a woman who's actually given birth says, yeah, you got off easy on that one. Why? Because that kind of waiting is hard. It's straining. It's tense. And, and, and there's, this, there's this scent, this weightiness. But he says, that's how I'm waiting for the word of God. Again, the basis, the basis of the hope the only reason the psalmist David could, in 131, calm his soul is because of who he was with. He doesn't say, I've mastered my anxiety. And now I'm going to go on a book tour. Here's seven habits to get rid of my, your anxiety. I've learned how to do it. I've conquered this. That's not what he writes. I've calmed my soul like a child, weaned child with its mother, with its mother. 
He knows who he's with. And he can trust that he'll give what he needs. I like the way a few people have put this. Waltke says, forgiveness includes the cancellation of sin's punishment, but first and foremost, it restores our relationship with God. Yes, forgiveness is getting you out of the guilt. It's removing the guilt of your sin and my sin, but it's more than that. It's a restoration into relationship with God. So if the basis of our hope is God himself, the person of Yahweh, how do we experience this hope? You see, if you've been following carefully, you should detect a flaw in the argument here. Because if the depths of our sin... If, the, if, if sin puts us in the depths and, and God is the basis of our hope, how on earth are we ever going to know God? Here is the gospel. We experience this hope not by climbing into heaven, not by clamoring out of the pit, but by God coming to us by Jesus Christ taking on flesh, lowering himself into the bottom of that pit. Suffering, but all the way revealing. You see, the suffering of Christ is also the revelation of God. It's not, just, it's not just him ticking the redemption box. It's him revealing the heart and the character of God. So we come to know God through Christ. Which is why he says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. You can't know this hope without Jesus. We experience it in Jesus. That's how we, that's how we learn and know of this hope. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we gather together. Not because we need to keep up the traditions, but because we get so much joy out of seeing Jesus in one another. Because when two believers, brothers and sisters with the Spirit of God get together, there's little, there's just, the Spirit just fires little flickers of Christ and we just see Christ and we say, yes, that's my Redeemer. And our heart is warmed, and our soul is lifted. We experience this hope through Christ because Christ reveals God to us. But we also experience in the fact that we have to live it out, something else that Pryor brings out. She would say, hope is a passion, but it's also a virtue to be practiced. And in practice, we live a faith that is patient. Not in the good patient, like you're sitting there reading a magazine saying, you know what, well, that's okay, I got, I got all day. Not that kind of patience. The, the, the patience of the watchman with the tired eyes and the monotonous routines. A faith that's patient, a faith that's humble, like that child but ultimately confident that God will redeem, he will provide what I need. And I think it's on the basis of that that Tucker and Grant can say this. The psalmist does indeed call us to action, but the action comes in the form of relinquishment. It's a bit back to front, isn't it? We are called to relinquish our sense of self-reliance, hubris and pride and in its place to adopt a posture similar to that of a child. A posture that positions us so that we might experience the fullness of God's compassion. Brothers and sisters, this, this is exactly what the parable of the prodigal son is all about. And while they're celebrating inside with the grace of God, the older brother's standing outside, bitter, because he doesn't realize he's a son. He says, I'm striving and I'm working and I don't get a party. Look how I've slaved for you. 
can I just tell you, don't offer yourself as a slave to Christ unless you first realized you're a son or a daughter. As a son or a daughter, offer your life to him in worship. But don't try to curry his favor through your deeds and through your performances, through, through, through all this stuff. You say, I don't know if I want to be a child. child children aren't, aren't respected. Maybe not in the world. But in this father's house, they are respected. In this father's house, they are welcome. What kind of hope is this? It's a hope that lifts. It's a hope that stills. It's a hope that's grounded in the person and the word of God. We experience this hope first and foremost through Jesus Christ and faith is our bond to him through which we experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is also called the spirit of adoption. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) And we experience this as we put this hope into practice through patient humility, through contentment. Can I just tell you, sometimes the best thing you can do as a Christian is not freak out. Honestly. The best thing you can do, the best witness you can be is when everyone is freaking out, you can say, actually, I have a calm and I have a quieted soul. And people look at you and say, oh, what do you think, you figured it all out? No, I haven't, actually. I'm quite dependent. Be glad you don't know me as well as I know me. But let me tell you whose child I am and who's with me. And so, yes, there is hope in the Lord. It's a real hope. It's a hope that's in him. But I need you to hear the invitation. You see, these two psalms are stories from a first-person perspective. The first one is, is someone who's crying out from the depths, and they talk about their story. The second one is, is David, who in a moment of, of meditation and reflection, reflects on himself, and he says, this, this is what I'm doing. I'm calming and I'm quieting my soul. But both of those psalms end with an invitation. Everyone, Israel, those who belong to the Lord, put your hope in the Lord. So I'm going to invite you. Have you put your hope in the Lord? You'll know your hope is resting in the Lord when you feel grace pulling you out of the pit. And when the peace that passes understanding settles upon your spirit. Not because of how good a Christian you've been, but solely based on the loving kindness of God who redeems his people from their sins. This is the hope that's available for you. No one can take it for you. You have to take it for yourself. No one can can make you trust the Lord. And it doesn't matter if you're working in the yard. (laughs) You must hear the Father's invitation and join the party. Let's pray. Father, what an anchor we have in Christ. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who've been battling so hard. Lord, I pray for them that they would seize upon the anchor. The anchor that passes into the holy place, into, into the heavenly realms where our life is hid with God in Christ. Lord, would you lift us, would you raise us, calm us today. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. As we come to finish our service in song, I just wanna invite you to take a moment and just be still. If you need to just listen to this song about grace, do that. These words will speak life to your spirit.
because they speak of the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. And as the Lord begins to fill your heart, would you just, would you just rest in that for a moment? Before you go about the rest of your day, before you, you know, get the kids sorted or before you move on to the next thing, don't turn off the feed or don't, don't get up from the couch or don't, don't go back inside if you're out walking. Don't do any of that without laying hold of the hope that is in the Lord this morning. Thanks, Phil.